As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. How many stepovers is too many stepovers? Specialist co-commentators versus Jermaine Genesee jacks of all trades. Could Rene Descartes do it on a tense Monday night down at Sky Sports? Do some games really have nil-nil written all over them? Superficial footballing superstitions and a salute to the last remaining tracksuit-resistant managers of the world game. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 166 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and co-piloting this latest instalment of MHD today is Charlie Eccleshare. How is it? It is going well. How are you? <laughs> Thought I'd mix it up by saying something completely nonsensical. How is it? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How goes it? I could have said, but that's that's awful too. But joining us for Mesut Harland Dicks today is a man whose cultural breadth is almost too much for one intro the BBC Radio 5 Live Night Owl, the voice of the world football phone-in, football rambles on the continent, and the Brazilian shirt name podcast. He's a Charlton Athletic fan for his sins. It's Dotton Adebayo. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Adam. And hi, Charlie. You all right, guys? Good. How are you? Yeah, very well. So it took you 167 episodes to get to me. I thought you, you built me up as a legend, man. <laughs> we, we have so many... Uh, we have so many... Um, bridges to burn before we got to you so uh, yeah uh, <laughs> okay. but 
but you know, welcome to the Football Clichés podcast. Any friend of Tim Vickery is a friend of ours. Quite well, frankly. I like to think that he gets said, you know, said the opposite to him. Any friend of Dot and Annie Biles is a friend of ours. And by the way, what's your name, Tim Vickery? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 you'll like that. That's good. That's good. But, um, but yeah, yeah, this 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 is a this is a right place for you because you you strike me as someone who who cares about the language of football, wants to preserve it, see it evolve, watch it grow, and and celebrate it. I want to preserve the passion particularly for younger people most of us got into football when we were very young and it made a difference in our lives it made you know marked difference it turned some of us into millionaires uh turned some of us into the opposite of that villains yes. or whatever you want to say but it did give us uh especially boys from my generation, but now I'm glad to see it's beyond boys because I've got daughters and, you know, they had to choose very early on. They realised where the dark side was and and where we're from in terms of North London. I'll leave Charlton to one side for now. But, um, and they had to choose the right side of that. But, you know, it makes you suddenly realise that there's something more, you know, there's something more in life that's going to have a profound effect uh, later on in, in your narrative. And that's what football is to me. You know, I can say I saw Jimmy Greaves play. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything or it doesn't mean a lot to everybody in the world, but to those who it means something to, uh, like those who know the value of a Mar- Maradona hand of God shirt, mm-hmm. it means mm-hmm. a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. 7.1 million. Too much. Indeed. Too well, much, I'd say. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure if it is too much. We're talking about the hand of God here. You know, when was the last time that you could own something that had the hand of God imprinted upon it? You could have bought Diego Maradona for 6 million at the same Once time. upon a time. <laughs> um, that's, that's the most damning thing I have to say about yeah, it. You but, can't buy him for any amount of money now. No, that's true, sadly. But you were talking about the profound effects that football can have on us. Um, I'm not sure profound is the word for, for this format, but let's, let's go for it anyway. You're on Mesut Harland Dix. Tell us about the first thing that fascinates you about football. Well, it's the art of the stepover. Right. I've got to be honest, uh, it's mesmerising mm-hmm. at the best of times. Sometimes it doesn't come off and it's entertaining, let's say. And uh, it is infuriating if you've ever played the game and somebody does that to you because generally you have to restrain yourself from giving them a good kick in the shins <laughs> to right. teach them a lesson. Because it's a Mickey take, isn't it? It is a Mickey take. Quite interesting mm. that you say that. Because, I mean, I because Charlie, I mean, when I was trying to place, when I was thinking about this this segment, I was thinking about where we place the step over in the, in the kind of the pantheon of, of the classic skills. And it is one of the greats. It is one of the classics. But, but I, what I would say is that I feel like it has the perfect ratio of flamboyance and functionality. I don't think it's a liberty-taking exercise. I think there's, a, there's an element of, of practicality to it, but there's also obviously a, a flashiness to it. So, but I think it's, it's kind of the perfect one. It, it does all, everything it should do. Yeah. I mean, for me, the step over is about two Ronaldos. The first R9 <laughs> El Phenomeno. I mean, he he was who I grew up, you know, he was the, the best player in the world, the guy you idolised. And I remember he would do it on goalkeepers, which mm. has very rarely been seen before or since. I mean, that takes an extraordinary level of technical ability. Yeah. But he was more ruthless. I don't know how much that was about taking the piss. And then mm. Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously, he came to the Premier League and did those sort of lollipop stepovers as they were called. And I think that was seen rightly or wrongly as a bit piss takey. He was called a show pony uh, and all of this. So it's definitely a skill that evokes 
a lot of emotion in people. Um, mm. But I'm, yeah, I'm definitely an advocate. I feel like we don't see them so much anymore. That- That's a very good point. Actually, um, uh, I've made a mental note that we, uh, at some point we need to establish a, an elegant and uh, consistent way of referring to the original Ronaldo. I don't think anyone's really nailed it. So mm, <laughs> Brazilian Ronaldo just doesn't feel right. I don't know why. But, R9. Um, but now Charlie's onto something here, Dawson, because I do feel like instinctively that they are becoming gently phased out the stepovers. I'm not sure what they're being replaced by, but I do feel like they're at least kind of maybe DVD level obsolete. Like they're kind of, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm like they're not, they're not as common as they used to be. First of all, Charlie absolutely nailed it as, you know, a conversation about two Ronaldos because the original Ronaldo, and I'm, I'm going to answer the point in this way, the original Ronaldo, the Brazilian, whatever you want to call him, the number mm-hmm. nine Ronaldo, mm-hmm. uh, he did it to, good effect. Yeah. I mean, it's a dangerous game to play to try and step over a goalie when it's just one on one between you and the goalie. Yeah. If it doesn't come off, you are toast, mate. Um, and he did it at 100 miles per hour, you know, because there are different ways of doing this, Ronaldo. And I, I, this is part of the reason why I think it's not in vogue as much. When Cristiano Ronaldo came in, and absolutely right, that Charlie said, um, you described them as lollipop stepovers. What I remember most about, and he was a teenager when he came to Manchester United and he had that funny haircut, you know, which nobody else has ever emulated before he started getting the teddy boy haircuts. And Rude van Nistelrooy said, look, yeah, he's all right. He needs to calm down on the stepovers. He needs to, a little bit of step, because he would do like seven stepovers, Mm. but not go anywhere. See, if you watched, Ronaldo's, the Cristiano Ronaldo's stepovers, they're actually ineffective. They are just showboating. Mm-hmm. And whatever, because the the defenders, the opposition, are never quite taken by them. What a stepover should do is buy you either a moment's time or a yard's advantage or whatever it is. That's what mm-hmm. it should do. Mm-hmm. But it's not as easy as it looks. On a five-a-side pitch, when somebody does it to you, I tell you, you think, flipping out, he knows how to do it. Damn. (laughs) But on a football pitch, defenders have seen it so many times, so they know not to dive in because the mistake will be, because what you want to do with a step over is draw the defender to make a move. If the defender doesn't make a move, it's like a goalkeeper that doesn't make a move before you take the penalty, then you actually are like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? And then it becomes a Cristiano Ronaldo step over. Whereas the the exocet precision of a Brazilian Ronaldo step over is, I'm going to get that goal. And just now I'm going to make you make a decision because the goalkeeper's got to make it. He's coming at them at such force. They've got to make, Mm. they're either going to bring him down in the penalty area, which probably is the better route to take because he's going to go one step. As soon as you move, he's gone the other way and you barely see it. And it's not a deliberated step over. It's a step over that is, is almost like a balletic move. Uh, from running towards a goalkeeper, he does this thing. He's not probably not going to step over more than once or twice. He's never mm-hmm. going to do it more than twice. Usually it's just one, then he goes the other way because from that one, you think, oh, right, he's going to take it. Most strikers are just going to go one side and go wide of the goalkeeper and then put it in the goal. But he says, no, no I'm going to go that side. He, he feints it with his body as well. So it's not just about the legs. Whereas with Cristiano Ronaldo, it's just, look, look at my legs, look at my legs. It's mm-hmm. like a dance, you know? This and- is where it becomes quite an interesting case study, the, these two, because I'm not sure, Dustin, we've seen a consensus reached on the optimum number of stepovers to perform in succession. Good question. One is arguably enough 
in certain situations. Yeah. You suggested two is is perhaps the optimum. Any more than three, I'd say, as you as you've implied already, is is kind of in or around parody territory as well because it becomes a bit silly. So, what what number are we talking? Two, would you say, is is the optimum? Well, I could say that, but Charlie, what would you say first of all? You're the expert in this. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it is somewhere between two and three. I feel like Ronaldo sometimes would go, the original Ronaldo would sometimes go as high as three. Mm. But um, I mean, two, two, two feels like a good compromise. But I mean, because you're trying to wrong foot the guy, really. is You know, it's almost like a dummy. You're trying as if you're going to play the ball with your right, but you're stepping mm. over and then going to your left. Okay. Um, I'd probably say two. Okay. Have you seen Wilf Sahar do them for Crystal Palace? Mm. Well, what he does is one, and then he adds it to another trick. So he's got two. He, he's going to suck you in with one, and then he adds another trick to it. So mm. the step over is actually two moves, but only one of them is a step over. So I think one, for me, is the safest route, because if you manage to con the opposition or the defender with one, then you don't need more than that. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're absolutely right. If you go above three, then basically you've failed. You've failed. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing to do, this is what Danielson used to do. He was one of the mm, sort of yeah, like right. famous step over guys. What he used to do, if he couldn't get you with, by the third one, he would move the ball anyway forward, try and go in between two defenders and then try it again. So there were two transitions of stepovers. It wasn't mm. just one. So it adds up in the end to about six or seven stepovers if you take them both. But you think to yourself, well, you could have just done, <laughs> you could have just moved it. The first set you didn't need at all, but you've taken it to another step. It's a huge art form, you know. And yeah. Just going back to your initial question, the reason why it's going out of fashion is partly because defenders know what a step over is and understand the various forms of step overs, but yeah. also because people do not have the artistry of somebody like the uh, Brazilian Ronaldo. He was the most effective. The two ways to do a step or the two reasons to do a step over. One is to dribble past people on your route to scoring mm -hmm. a goal. Mm -hmm. The second one is to get you out of a tricky situation. Mm. Like, you know, the famous, um, the one, the step over that we remember from our leagues the most was Glenn Roder, I think, when he was at Newcastle. Right. And what he did, he, he was. He didn't strike this very step over yeah. he had. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, That's the whole point. That. But he's probably one of the most famous. I mean, Chris Waddle, again, on the wing, uh, particularly when he was playing for Marseille, where he yeah. is still a legend, believe me. You go to Marseille, you get picked up by a cabbie, and they know that from the UK, it's, oh, Chris Waddle, Chris Waddle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he was not a fast, as we all know, he wasn't yeah. the fastest player on the field. He's probably one of the slowest players on the field. So his step over is, and coming in from the wing as well, his step overs are more about mesmerizing the opposition to enable him to dribble mm -hmm. rather than to just get past them on the on, on his way to gold, if you see what I mean. Yeah. He's expecting to dribble a few people on thing, And the step over is just one of the bag of tricks that he had. He had loads and loads and loads of tricks. That was just one of them. So it doesn't come out as being particularly, again, using the word profound when Chris Waddle does them. But I'll tell you what, you watch Chris, uh, the original Ronaldo do it and you'll see that's going to be a goal. Just before he's going to bang it in, he just does one quick shuffle. And that's it. It's over. Well, it's it, it's quite telling that we're kind of citing 
late 90s, early 2000s examples here as, as, as the kind of climax of this. But um, we asked our listeners, Charlie, for footballing acts that we don't really see anymore. Mm. Um, Travelling Teacher kicks us off with, uh, mercifully, he says, we no longer have to watch goalkeepers endlessly bouncing the ball. Um, I mean, yeah, it is a thing. I mean, of course, it's a very grey area, the whole six seconds number of steps thing. No one really knows what the reality is, but it is, I have to say, not something I particularly miss. Goalkeepers just bouncing the ball. But do you remember remember when the law changed? Yeah. You literally saw, it was weird watching a goalkeeper running in the penalty area without bouncing the ball. I mean, we were brought up at school. It looks ridiculous. You did. Absolutely. Like, no. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of which, we won't do a lot this one this is from 11 in the mid who says uh, you don't often see players putting one thumb over a nostril and blowing out an ungodly amount of snot out of the other one you see it nowhere near as much as the mid 2000s early 2010s very precise time period from him there charlie um i, I mean I, I can't imagine what the science is behind this but you know i for one i'm happy to see that go that and spitting i feel like that was a real thing uh, amongst footballers they all seem to be able to spit in this incredible in this incredibly effective way very precise yeah, yeah, just, yeah. You don't, you just, you don't but see that anymore. That, that's not spitting. That's gobbing. By the way, there's a slight difference. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, this still, is exactly the place we should be debating this. By the way, well, they still do gob though. They still mm. usually they gob when they don't agree with the referee's decision. Right. Uh, they like gob as if they're going to aim it at the referee, but they sidestep it slightly because mm. they know what the consequences of that will be. But they do gob. You know, like. Gobbing is their way of saying, I don't agree with that. Okay. It comes from somewhere deep, I guess, Mm. very deep, because it is a proper gob. You know, it's not something that was just formed in their mouths. (laughs) This is exactly the sort of tangent I expected to go down, and I'm glad we did. Um, Dotson, your football fascination number two, please. Well, I, as you would expect, am fascinated by football pundits. Mm. I'm fascinated by football live commentators uh, and that, that's a skill in itself, you know. Um, I know I've talked to the likes of John Murray at Five Live, and I'm like, you know, he, he's like said to me, I couldn't do what you do. And I'm like, are you sure? Mm-hmm. You can do what, I couldn't do what you do, mate. I just don't know how they do it, descriptively and all that. But the football pundit, the mm. sidekick of the football commentator, has got to add some kind of uh, knowledge, experience, wisdom, and forethought into the punditry. And there are many, many options, particularly because most pundits are former footballers. So the ones that not everybody does it well, not everybody does it well, you know. I mean, Jamie Carragher is in the studio as a football pundit rather than being uh, next to the commentator as a live pundit because he's not as good, uh, clearly, as Gary Neville in doing mm. it. I'm, I'm not knocking Jamie Carragher at all. I think these are different skills that you have. People watching telly, they think it's all the same skill. You know, well, Gary Neville, well, he commentates, well, whoever else, Micah Richards can commentate. No, or it can be the commentator or pundit. No, no, mm. he can't. Micah Richards is better in the studio, clearly, at the moment. And, you know, the likes of Alan Shearer are too. But the punditry, it's live and direct. It's not with... Um, 
like when they're in the studio, usually at halftime or at the end of the match, they're evaluating something in retrospect. So it's, they've had a lot of time to think mm. about it. Yeah. No, the pundit, live and direct, he's got to say, no, that's a free kick for me every time. No, <laughs> that's that's offside for me. He's got to get it right. Yeah. And they get it right before we do. They've got to get it right before we sort of like, we're still thinking, what's that offside? And they've seen something that we haven't seen because they've been there. They've yeah. been on the field and they're bringing that experience to it. I, I, I can't get enough of them. Yeah, <laughs> fair yeah. enough. Um, this has got me thinking about the kind of hierarchy of, of skills required for this, Charlie. Um, as Dotson says, kind of a, a pundit um, in the studio has this kind of um, luxury of having this time to sit there and really think about what they're going to say in this small window of analysis at halftime and full time. And, and, and the, the commentators themselves have to it's the hardest job of all you have to react with eloquence to something that's happening right in front of you but somewhere in the middle is the co-commentator and the one thing that does help a co-commentator charlie is the fact that we aren't even as viewers now we know exactly the moment that they're supposed to start talking it's it's absolutely mm-hmm. amazing like it, it doesn't even need to be signposted by the commentator you know exactly the moment that the co-commentator will come in and uh, and and i feel like that's a bit of benefit to them because it, it really kind of gets them running but it is all that is almost an added pressure as well because it's like we are now giving you a platform. Yeah, say something snappy and insightful and interesting in often quite a short space of time. Um, you know, it's really signposting them, like you know, and here is some insight for you. Yeah, um, but you can't just get away with just saying what happened. I mean, no one's really going to mind. Yeah, I get. I guess that's what elevates the really, the really good ones, isn't it? Mm. That they do, they do go beyond that. But yeah, they've got like split second I guess to or seconds to gather their thoughts after the goal goes in and then thinking yeah. right he's going to come to me it, it, you know I need to say something in a moment what, what, what side of the fence would you sit on here Dotson if are you are you more inclined towards someone who could convey the emotion of the situation it, you know purely with their voice if, even if it's not pure with pure insight or do you need that insight do you need the kind of ex-footballers analysis of why something happened or do you actually demand both because uh, you're being very demanding i think the skill and by the way there are some tricks of the trade when a commentator and a pundit pundit sit side by side they can yeah. nudge each other you know and they get to know each other like uh, Alan Smith, he was a half-decent centre-forward for Arsenal, or striker, he wasn't always centre-forward. And he did the, he really, I've got a lot of respect for this guy because I remember when he retired, he did the groundwork to become a journalist. He started writing for the local papers Mm. and everything like that before he went on to the Nationals and everything like that. So the skill that he has learned with whichever commentator is beside on Sky, the skill that he has learned is to be part of you know we were talking about the smooth transitions of stepovers a moment or two ago Mm. there is a chemistry that is built up between a commentator and a pundit you don't need to expect the pundit to add something in that the commentator hasn't added in we're watching the game Mm-hmm. So obviously the commentator is telling us the obvious. If you're watching on radio, it's a slightly different skill. But we're watching the game and the uh, it's almost as if the pundit, for me, is the star, is the star. The commentator is the journalist, you know, yeah. the strict journalist is just going to report the facts. 
The pundit's job is to explain things to us. The game moves very fast. You know, when you're watching it on TV, it's not the same as watching it live, obviously. Go to a football ground and you're forming your own impressions. You are the pundit, if you like, along with the 50,000 or however many thousands of other <clears throat> spectators there. You're part of the emotion. So you all jump up and say, oh, referee, that was a foul at the same time. But the pundit has got to try and translate that through the medium of television to us. Mm -hmm. And what he does, he doesn't, he, he can't do it from the perspective of a fan. I hear Mark Lawrenson sometimes and he's like, he'll be commentating Liverpool versus Everton. And I know he's got Preston in his blood as well and Ireland and all of that, but you know that he's like, well, you know, that, that, and the deadpan way in which he says a lot of these things, makes it for me it, it turns it into an entertainment i want to know yeah, there's no point in trying to hide words. it is there there's, there's well, no he, try he doesn't quite you. hide it you see yeah i don't think well, there's any need to you're sitting there wondering i wonder what he's going to say next mm. i'll tell you one thing that i remember very clearly i remember uh robbie savage's debut as a <laughs> co-commentator <laughs> on wow when was this five live oh gosh when was it it's probably about probably going back to about twelve years ago, maybe mm. about. But it was about on a right. Sunday, and he was coming. And I thought he he played a blind day. In fact, I haven't heard him be a co-commentator as well as he was on that on that day. It was an afternoon game, and he was so funny and everything. You thought, All is right. this the same Robbie Savage? You know, yeah. and he he got. I think he slipped since then because, you know, he does a lot of different things. It's a skill that you should just stick to. Like yeah. all these skills, don't try and multitask. Don't try and be Jermaine Genus and, and start presenting the one show or anything like that. No or the World Cup draw, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that was unfortunate. But <laughs> with no disrespect to all these people, they're my colleagues. You know, I'm not yeah. disrespecting them, but I, I see that there is something to be said to sticking to that skill. And the skill of a pundit is to animate the game for us viewers to keep us interested because the commentator, like I say, is just telling us the facts, right? Why should we be bothered? Mm. Why should we be bothered? Because the pundit suddenly says, Oh, you pay attention. No, no, no. W watch this move. Watch this move. Because I think something's going to come out of this move. And then you suddenly wake up and you think, wow, he called it right. It may not have resulted in a goal, but the pundit was on the ball the whole way through. Yeah, I'm fascinated by them. Well, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, it, it was something that we never used to have back in the day. Then we had one. Now, we, now we've quite frequently got two. So I'm fascinated to see how many co-commentators we can squeeze into a gantry <laughs> over the next 10 years. Um, uh, I'd be interested to see how you're going to squeeze the next one into, a, into about six to eight minutes. But uh, let, let's see, because this one is very open-ended, your third fascination of football. Yeah, it is about the philosophy of football. Mm. And here I have to start with uh, Rene Descartes' meditations. And I had a tenor on Descartes being the first one, but yeah. Well, of course. I could go further back, you know, but I didn't think you'd want me to go to the ancient <laughs> Greeks. and Camus Aristotle. is often uh, chucked in as well. well Camus only was the only one I wrote down on the running order. <laughs> only because he's a footballer. Yeah. You know, it, in that respect, we should really be talking about Pope John Paul II as mm. well. But, what no, a pontiff he was, by the way. Yeah, indeed. And a goalkeeper. <laughs> but, um, no. The reason why it starts with Descartes is because of his famous line, uh, je pense donc je suis. I think, therefore, I am. I remember when 
particularly Wayne Rooney came up through Everton and went to Manchester United. There was all these um, really disrespectful stories in the papers. I think they're extremely disrespectful, actually. It's similar thing to what's happening with Gareth Bale at Real Madrid, although that is um, that goes to another level of it. But the disrespectful ones about Wayne Rooney was like, he's as thick as two planks. Mm. And then you play football. And I remember him getting that, remarkable bicycle kick against Man City. And they asked him, you know, do you train for that? You know, can you train for that? And And he says, no, it's instinct. Well, it may be instinct, but for those of us who play football, you've got to think on your feet very, very fast. And a footballer is somebody who thinks, therefore, they are. Get deeper into this as well, because... Rene Descartes' meditations is the roots of what you would call existential uh, phenomenological philosophy of the 20th century. And existentialism is the conundrum for every footballer. You've got to make a choice. Look at that, um, you know, the <laughs> where we started. It all goes back to stepovers, you see. There is a method mm-hmm. in this madness. In a stepover, you've got to make a choice. Both... Yeah the stepover artist and the defender. You've got to make a choice. And one thing you cannot do in existentialist philosophy is not choose. That's the one thing you can't do because even in not choosing, that's a choice. Footballers, every moment of the game, they have to make a choice. And that's all 22 players on the field, including the goalkeeper. Where am I standing? How far away from my goal line am I standing? What's going to happen next? You have to make choices about things that may have unforetold consequences in the future. Nobody talks of, or few people talk of, they talk about the footballing philosophies of the coaches. And I think, Never mind the footballing philosophies of the coaches. They're not real philosophies of the coaches. A philosophy is, by its very definition, a knowledge or a love of wisdom. And the coaches, so, what so the they love... the word's been cheapened for you in football, has it? Well, the idea of philosophies of coaches, yeah, or the philosophy of a team, um, yeah. I think is such a broad stroke. The philosophy of a team is to win. The philosophy Mm. of a coach is to win. The philosophy of the footballer is to make the right choices and to think very quickly because it's a fast moving game. You know, I I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they make a choice. I saw the Benzema goal against Manchester City in the European uh, Champions League semi-final. And I saw, it was funny. I saw the Man City goalie looking and thinking, yeah, I've studied him. I've studied Mm. him. Mm -hmm. I've studied him. I saw Benzema not looking at him. In fact, I was looking to the side and everything. And he was like doing this thing with his nose, you know, like, you know, scratching his nose or rubbing the sweat Mm. off his face or whatever like that. And he made the move that he would have made if he was going to shoot to the right. But the goalkeeper moved. And you imagine that in that split Mm. second, Benzema had to make another decision. It may have been something that he decided from the beginning, but if you look at it, you slow it down and think about it. He suddenly, he has to, the the shape of his body has to change in literally the last fraction of a second. 
that's some quick thinking because most of us would be like, oh, fuck, he's gone the right way, but mm -hmm. your leg's already gone before you're thinking, you know? Um, here, no, it went the other way around. And I thought, wow, that is that was an existential choice. And he comes from the home of existentialism. Of course. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, this, that's, this is probably the most elegant 50-50 challenge between existentialist philosophy and football I've seen so far. But but having having witnessed previous attempts at this, Charlie, I feel, like, I feel like this is my opportunity to at least challenge this because I, I do feel like sometimes there is a danger of reading too much into football. Or on the other hand, maybe it's just a harmless rabbit hole to go down. We're not hurting anyone by, by indulging in football too much. But we asked, I asked our listeners for similar situations where they've used football as an analogy for other things in life to an almost absurd extent. And Alan Shepard writes in, I could really enjoy this one. He says, I once used the example of Juventus's colours being inspired by Notts County as a comparison for famous works of art being influenced by forgotten pieces in an <laughs> art history paper. Yes, <laughs> this yes. is great. Yes. Well done him. Good. If you can squeeze football into, into, into an answer for examination, then, um, then well done, because maybe it does answer everything in life after all. It is often very relevant. I mean, there, there, yeah. there are, you'll often find, because it's such a, a reference point for us, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we have such a kind of inbuilt history of the game. So there are so many stories we have that can help us make sense of the world, I guess. Yeah. But I think also, you know, that point, Dotton, that you make about the calculations and all of this, I mean, it is... It, it is incredible. I mean, all sports people, the what they're thinking, the, the decisions they're having to make in these microseconds, the intelligence that requires, the spatial awareness, the sort of the geometry. I mean, the the kind of appreciation of angles. You know, all these things, the weight of pass, but all these things sort of combine, and it is incredible. And and it is really interesting how how some players diverge. Some can talk about it and can kind of explain it, and others really can't. And often sports people can't. They don't. It's very. It's a very difficult thing, because it's a part of your brain that you're not really thinking. Almost, it, it becomes automatic, and that's what. You, that's almost the state you want to be in when mm. you're playing. But you know, when you start thinking, is is that is sports people often say that's that's the danger. You know, you're trying to switch off that conscious part of your brain. You're absolutely right. I would say. If you've ever read some of this, uh, these philosophers, they can't explain themselves either, you know, mm. and that puts them on the same level as footballers uh, for me, because sometimes the concepts um, need, well, famously, Jean-Paul Sartre, to explain his philosophy, he had to write novels and plays, which sort of showed in a narrative or dramatic narrative what he actually means. <clears throat> so, for example, there's one, I can't remember the names of all these, you know, short stories and so on, but there's one that um, Jean-Paul Sartre writes, which is like set in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And this guy gets captured, you know, and um, gets captured by the uh, phalangist or whatever. And uh, they said, look, we're going to torture you, you know, until you tell us where you know, that your leader is sort of thing, where he's hiding out. And they torture him and he's like, no, no, I'm not going to. So they torture him some more the next day and they said, no, and they torture him some more the next day. After about three or four days of this, he's just fed up and he just thinks, I'll just say anything. And so he says, oh, well, you know, Belidi's hiding over by the, you know, the old church in the graveyard or whatever it is. And um, 
then they said, okay, we're not going to talk to you anymore. And they give him food and everything like this. And a couple of days later, he's, you know, in the camp, the prisoner war camp or whatever it is with, you know, one of the sort of his fellow communists or whatever. And the other guy says to him, did you hear about, they caught the leader in the church in the graveyard, hanging, hiding out in the graveyard. Again, this was a way of sort of saying you make choices Mm -hmm. that have unforetold consequences. He couldn't have known, but nevertheless, it's a a choice that you make. He could, what Jean-Paul Sartre would say, because other people would say, well, but he was tortured, he's been tortured. He just said the first thing that came to his head. Jean-Paul Sartre would have said, yeah, but he could have just allowed himself to be tortured to death. That's a choice. That is a choice that you've got to make. And in football, you know, you make a choice to tackle somebody in the yeah. penalty area. You know you could have stood off and just let him take a pot of shot at the goal because he could still miss. But no, you make a choice, a fundamental choice, even though you know you're not going to get the ball. It's better that you bring down the player in that case and you might get sent off as a consequence as well. But I think it is important to remember that philosophers tie themselves up in knots just as much as anybody else. I was going to say, I was going to say exactly the same thing. But this is is, is fascinating. From from Albert Camus to Karim Benzema, the the French-Algerian epicentre of football philosophy. It's either a PhD (laughs) thesis or it's an athletic long read. I can't work Mm -hmm. out who it is. It depends who's going to write it, Charlie. I'm not sure. <laughs> Give it to Don Fifield, maybe. Uh, there are some quick question marks about uh, Albert Camus' time in Algeria. That's why oh, right. I'm standing aloof from the Camus. Okay, fair enough. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Welcome back to Meza Holland. It's with Dotson Adebayo. We've already discussed football philosophy, football punditry, 
and the step over. But now let's move on to the exciting part, Justin. We're going to talk about the things that irritate you about football. Um, the first one, I thought you'd be above this, quite frankly. No, no, I thought you'd be above you, it. You seem I'm to be quite a considered man, supporter. but no, but no. <laughs> I'm a chart and athletic supporter. And the amount of times that we've been done over in the last minute of a game, I can't tell you. And it hurts to be beaten uh, when let's say the game was three all and you end up losing four three that has happened to me a couple of times and I travel a long way to see Charlton I mean a lot of people say that's not a long way but trust me North London to South London <laughs> to South East London mate there's no straight way of getting there particularly when it's a, a busy sort of rush hour evening game or indeed on a Saturday afternoon but if you go all that way, and I'll take a loss. I'll take yeah. a loss because I think, well, you know, okay. that was unfortunate, but somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. I can't take a draw. A nil-nil draw, <laughs> I'm talking about. <laughs> I was going to say, any draw, that's, that's <laughs> no, too much. No, 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 but no, no, nil-nils, no. right, a, a okay. Nil, a nil-nil draw. I know that, in a way, football's like a chess match and you do get stalemates as well along mm. the way. I, I won't deny that. Now, we're going to get onto that but, in a moment. I've got, I've got a real um, a bugbear about this, but yeah, carry <laughs> on. But, um, and I, I used to not understand the way Americans played their sports because they couldn't understand nil-nil. You know, mm. I'm always explaining nil-nil to my American friends that came over to study at my university and stuff like that. And you'd always say, no, 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 but it's important because it's not, it's not just, it's not bad. It's not just about winning. Imagine me saying that. It's <laughs> not just about winning. Uh, excuse me. The, the game, if it, ever was not about winning. It certainly changed since then. And with the emergence of American money in the Premier League, and who knows, it might be a bit more, uh, depending on what happens with Chelsea. They, they've already started talking about, you know, the, the madness of uh, world football, of FIFA, we know, uh, they're looking at that American market to try more and more uh, ways of trying to draw the American market in to make football not the fourth or fifth sport in America, but to make it uh, first or second. I don't think they're going to succeed with that, but that's another story. But I suddenly start understanding how, why in America a game has to conclude with a win or not. I don't, like I said, I don't mind a draw by itself, yeah. but a nil-nil draw. You've come to see some artistry. You've come to be entertained. How can a game end after 90 minutes with a nil-nil? And I'll show you what my trajectory is on this. Yeah. Remember the days when it was two points for a win, one point for a draw. Why did they turn it into three points for a win? So that you could try and get some goals instead of aiming for a nil-nil. So this is about goal scoring for you. You you want you want you want to see the net ripple. You need to see all the all the furniture that goes with a goal. That that makes a game for you. Even if it's a riveting game, a pulsating game full of chances and all sorts of stuff. If there's no goals, that's no good to you. It's not that it's no good for me, um, but it's like what were the two sides doing? Because <laughs> my, my no, no, hold hold on. No, I mean. You laugh, but you think about it. It's very much easier for two teams to say, let's just settle for a nil-nil draw mm. than it is for them to say, let's settle for a one-all draw 
Mm. That's difficult to predict. Yeah. And it's easier for them to say nil-nil than say, oh, we'll win or lose by one or two goals. And I've seen too many matches where they just settle, particularly in the second half, particularly in the closing stages, oh, we'll just settle for nil-nil. I'm sorry, I paid my money to come and see you. And you're saying the last 15, 20 minutes, yeah. we're just going to pass the ball around. Uh, okay. No, that doesn't work for me. I see. Charlie, I don't know how you feel about scoreless draws. <laughs> Uh, feel free to express any emotion you like. But, but you know, we have XG now. If a match finishes nil-nil, you can look at those numbers and you can, with a pretty high degree of statistical confidence, imagine what it would have been like if you'd seen, say, 1.71 goals. That's fine. That's all you need now. You can just imagine what it would have been like. You don't need, you don't need goals. You youngsters, eh? <laughs> yeah. I like the idea of deterrence for nil-nil, punishments. So you get docked points for nil nils to try and good. to try and end this tyranny. Oh, yeah, I mean I, I, I do remember very vividly at school having an argument. Someone was trying to make the case for a nil-nil, saying it had actually been a really, really good game. And and then that prompting a discussion as to can you have an exciting nil-nil? And I think that discussion still exists. I mean there are a few good nil-nils from down the years, but they are they are they, there is a unique disappointment to that moment when you realize with a, with however long left this is finishing nil nil isn't it well as the as the italian anibali frossi once said the perfect result to a football game is nil nil that's because it's an expression of the balance between the attacks and defenses out on the field mm. so everybody's done their job right but you have to quote an italian if you don't mind i'll quote an englishman i'll i'll quote an englishman Gary Lineker. Well, it's going to be the last item on Match of the Day tonight. That is very true. That's more profound. That is actually more profound. That's Thank football you. philosophy. There Thank it is right there. Being Thank last you. on Match of the Day. It trumps anything else. I would um, say conversely, I, in my whole footballing career, I've played in one nil-nil and I never felt more professional after. Oh, it's brilliant. E- even, though it was, even though it was because of the dreadful quality on show from both teams, still, I was like, I've played in a nil-nil. I'm a, yeah. I'm a proper player now. What did you do afterwards? Sort of go back in a sort of state of completely dumbfounded like what was that it, it was genuinely unique never yeah. before or since have I played in a nil-nil it's so I, rare I hope Dawson wasn't there paying oh, I definitely <laughs> wasn't there because isn't it the most embarrassing out. Thing, <laughs> the most embarrassing thing about a nil-nil is when both managers rock up and say well at least we kept a clean sheet yeah fuck you your clean sheet <laughs> see it's all spilling out now but um uh, I, but I, want to, I want to get stuck into the language of nil-nils, if you would indulge them even further, Dotton. Um, uh, the word deadlock is, is thrown around quite a lot, but I put it to you that a deadlock cannot exist or indeed be broken before the half-hour mark. A game doesn't, isn't, doesn't begin in deadlock. Mm. A deadlock is something that has to, has to be cultivated, has to have a state of tension. A game isn't, by definition, deadlocked straight away, right? Are you, are you happy with that? 100%. Uh, a deadlock only happens... In well, I would say the last second before the uh, the referee blows his whistle. Wow, that's a very fundamentalist approach to deadlock. (laughs) I have to say. Well, you know there are goals scored in the last second, so Mm. it's not a deadlock. The deadlock can be broken. Mm. Okay. Okay, I'm sticking with my half hour mark, but okay, yeah, you, you, you crack on. I mean, maybe it's a Charlton thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but um, you mentioned chess earlier, Dawson, um, and chess is so often cited, Charlie, as, as a kind of mm. football proxy in this. I mean, it makes us all sound very intelligent for a start, but the word stalemate, mm-hmm. I'm seeing a creeping usage of the word stalemate for score draws. It's, I don't like it. It's just nonsense. It, it defies the tradition of the word stalemate. And this is where the chess definition is of no use. 
um, because because a football game doesn't doesn't really work like that. So a stalemate is a nil nil. Yeah, um, because also the stalemate it wouldn't have been in a the stalemate would have been broken at one point in, in, a, in a score draw yeah. or, or two points, if, mm. you know, depending on how much of a score draw we're talking. And yeah. that's important to a stalemate. Yeah, I think it's important that we but keep a stalemate, it sacred. A stalemate in chess is when both teams are trying to win the game. It's yeah. not when they decide at some point, uh, let's just and call it quits. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, oh, I can't And they're remember. both huffing and puffing, but not get, not breaking e- through. E- yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I'd love to see football pundits use the phrase Queen's Gambit in a football match. Let's see where that gets us. Oh, that's, yeah. Uh, chess cliches kicking off this exactly. podcast any moment now. Um, my final thing on this, Charlie, the concept of games that have nil-nil written all over them. <laughs> I feel like this is a very precarious thing to claim because I feel like it's a very inefficient prediction. They're based on very basic prejudices, um, games that have nil-nil written all over. You look at two teams you, who aren't very fashionable and you think they're going to draw nil-nil. doesn't work like that. Um, mm. People shouldn't do it. And uh, I've been guilty of it in the past and I'm going to stop doing it. Yeah, all the... the- Converse to that, what you're sometimes here jokingly is the you know, Wolves go into this game having scored 12 in the last three and Newcastle have scored 14 in their last seven. Probably a nil-nil then. <laughs> um, which should also probably be rooted out. I mean, yeah. the thing is as well, nil-nil written all over it. I, I don't know if, to, to say that before a game is strong. I think mm. that's more a kind of... Maybe as it starts to evolve. Yeah, I, yeah, I think It's not so. going to be their day. I mean, I, 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 would, I wouldn't be brave enough to declare any game to have nil-nil written all over it but I, but I will accept Dotton's alternative which is this looks like it will be last on match of the day because that, that's based on something much more solid you can have two unfashionable teams they might play out a fairly decent 2-2 but it could conceivably still be last on match of the day but all those but all those uh, metaphors or you know c- commitments to how the game is going to pan out should only be brought in the last couple of minutes. First of all, it's not a great look. You know, if you start saying ahead of a match, this looks like it's got nil-nil written all over it. I'm not going to go to the match. I don't know if you lot are, but I'm certainly not going to go to the match. And there are so many transitions in football. Uh, we know that a game that has got nil-nil written all over it in the first half for example, in the second half, uh, I mean, you could just argue Villarreal uh, came back against Liverpool mm. uh, in, in with a different... They had Neil on their side, in any case. You didn't expect them to come back so strongly in the second half. You know, in the second half, anything can happen. In the yeah. last five minutes, anything can happen. Okay. You saying that it's got nil-nil written all over it is a way of sort of saying, this match ain't worth bothering with. It's going to be a draw with no goals. I, I, yeah, I'm going to refrain that, from using it. I'm, I'm going to ban myself from using it. No more. It's uh, it's not a healthy way to look no, at no, things. No, no, it's it's a great cliche. Don't, yeah. don't oh, yeah. yourself from using when, when when particularly when you're doing live sport, have all the cliches available to you. Just yeah, damn right, absolutely. Have, What's your second irritation of football, please, Dustin? Football superstitions. Good, good, agree. Dear oh dear, dear oh dear oh dear. Well, you see players coming on the pitch and you know doing the sign of the cross and everything. I'm not knocking. I'm not criticising any religious sentiment. I generally don't. Or Raheem Sterling coming onto the beat and raising his hand in, you know, in, uh, is it suppliance or whatever it is, um, you know, both his palms faced upwards and everything. I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem when footballers feel like 
if they're not wearing the right suit yeah. or, you know, to a match, yeah, they're going to lose yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. And the um, the coaches feel like, oh, no, the bus has got to go the same mm. way to the football ground. Otherwise, we're going to lose. Yeah, a load, of, load of rubbish. A load of rubbish. Of course it's rubbish. But. Well, you say of course. It seems to work for some teams. <laughs> this does make me wonder. This does make me wonder. Charlie, yeah. I do fear, especially with these kind of surface level superstitions, like, you know, putting one shin pad on before the other. Mm. I do worry that some players, perhaps, perhaps, you know, right at the elite level, or maybe even in Sunday League, probably file it under marginal gains. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking I've that. I've cracked mean, it. I've, got, in, I've cracked the extra 1%. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Incy being topless. And, you know, <laughs> if, if I can do a superstition that also showcases my incredible body, you know, all the better. Is that the first superstition, do you think, quite a whole generation was exposed to, Dotson? Paul Lintz not putting his shirt on before, right before he got to the end of the tunnel. Oh, no. I think there were superstitions before that. I seem okay. to remember uh, Bobby Charlton doing, because Bobby Charlton had big, thick thighs. Yeah. And uh, before a match on the centre spot, you know, you'd see him sort of giving the thighs a quick sort of like, mm. not so much a rub down, but it was like a, you know, a quick jog up and down and everything. I think, okay. I think those superstitions existed. That's just before. called a warm up. That's not a superstition. <laughs> no, you can't no, have no, that. No. <laughs> if you do it exactly the same way at the same moment, every the single time. stretching his hamstring superstition. superstition. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but no, if you do the stretching of the hamstring, exactly the same spot every single time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember going to see, um, it was Brentford. It was Brentford, yeah. Mm. And um, half time, you know, the, they'd obviously all had these, um, you know, dr- drinking their bottles of uh, mineral water at half time. I can't remember which player it was who came on and he came on and just as he walked over the the uh, touchline, he took a swig and then he chucked the bottle out. And I, the person next to me said, yeah, he does that every game. No, no, that, that's what he does. He does it every game. We're going to win now because he does that every game. <laughs> I'm not thinking, no. I can't remember. Brentford's 100% record, yeah. It, it was at their old ground. It was their, at yeah. their old ground. I remember there were holes in the in the roof of that. So I think it was a rainy day as well. So the, the rain was falling right on my lap. Oh, <laughs> yeah. God, I hope there was at least one goal in that game, Dawson. <laughs> I can't yeah. remember it, actually. Yeah. Right, OK. That leads us nicely onto football irritation number three. Take it away. Well, there are some coaches that wear suits. Others feel like they've got to wear track suits. I had a really funny anecdote just the other day. It was an American who was saying that, oh, yeah, you know, they were talking about football shirts. And they were like, mm-hmm. they couldn't get why we wear football shirts. I think this was on the World Football Phone, actually. They couldn't get yeah. why we wear football shirts to matches. And they said, yeah, if you wore a football shirt to a match in America, people were like, all oh, right, so you think you're in the team, do you? <laughs> you think That's you're quite the a logical thing. Team. That's quite a logical <laughs> response, I'd say. Yeah, well, it feel- is mine. But it's okay. That's, but that is the exact attitude. I laughed at it and thought that's madness. But when I think about it, that's the exact attitude that I have when you see a coach on the sideline wearing the flipping tracksuit. Yeah. I'm like, do you think you're going to get a game or something? <laughs> Give me a flipping break. You know, be like Jimmy Hill in the old days. Remember when they needed yeah. the linesman and yeah. he just happened to have his linesman's or his tracksuit with him on yeah. that day? No, you're not going to get brought his game. flag just in case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, like, um, it, it made me try and think about how, how can we pinpoint the kind of the median dress code in the Premier League right now, Charlie, because bad jeans, they're kind of the current scourge of La Liga and Bundesliga to, to varying degrees. But I think we're still clinging on to an element of decorum in the yeah. Premier League now. You're seeing a few kind of pundit trainers. You're seeing a few 
few kind of bit of casual wear. Where do we stand right now? What's the state of play? But they're not many um, ties, are there? No. So very rare. Um, so there's three tie-wearing managers left? Let me yeah. check. I, t- I tweeted this the other day. You carry on. Uh, I was going to say I saw someone tweet this. I mean, obviously it was you. Obviously. Um, <laughs> these are important, important numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a shift, wasn't there, with the... Uh, the influx of uh, foreign managers came in and you had managers wearing suits. Guys like Mourinho came in in the mid-noughties and did raise the bar, sartorily speaking. Yeah. Um, You know, it became quite a thing, the tracksuit manager, Martin Mm. O'Neill, wearing it almost as a badge of honour. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I can confirm we're down to 15% tie-wearing representation in the Premier League. (laughs) Uh, Steven Gerrard... Brendan yeah. Rodgers, Roy Hodgson. Some uh, some claim Antonio Conte is a tie wearer, but he's not a consistent one, is he, no, Charlie? He's no, he's not. He's often in a polo neck as well, not even yeah. in a shirt. Exactly. But I mean, also an all time low, I think. There is as well, Dustin. The the tracksuit is now often given away to the, that kind of leisure wear that they wear. Mm. Again, looking exactly. as if to show they're still trim. That, you yeah. know, I could, I could probably still do a job here in my Under Armour leisure wear. <laughs> and, and also, I'm cool with the kids. I'm down yeah, with the exactly, kids. Yeah. I'm wearing exactly what they wear. Yeah, and yeah, fair yeah. Enough, and, and fair enough, they get all these tracksuits for free, don't they? You know, the mm. sponsorship and all of that. You see them wearing those, um, over this winter, you saw them wearing those three-quarter length puffer jackets, you know, that um, everybody seemed to be wearing out on the streets at least where i live they all the kids did i had got myself a half length one and i felt yeah, they're, so out some of them are too long yeah yeah, yeah. They're, they're, but, they're, i mean how cold can your shins get is <laughs> is my only response to this um let's end this segment and indeed this this episode with um some managers who are gonna rail against this this movement towards track suited technical area behavior so here are the tracksuit resistant managers of our time. Carlo Ancelotti wouldn't lower himself mm. to this. Indeed. I feel. I think <laughs> he's, he's way above this. He's too cool for this. Um, I also remember Jose Mourinho's tracksuit for the Gerard Slip game at oh, Anfield yeah, in 2014, yes. which felt like some sort of insulting mind game. He looked an absolute state. Yeah, well, he looked. Do you remember he'd been here yeah. in the oh. days before and he did look terrible? <laughs> it was like he's going to. deliberate. He was going to double down on how bad he looked. You know, like, this is what I think of this game. I think there was a whine about fixture scheduling as well. It was all just... just One of the most cynical acts of tracksuiting I've seen in football in recent years. Dawson, James Wynn writes in and says, Pep in a tracksuit or Klopp in a suit would break football indefinitely. Um, Klopp has been known to wear a suit back in the Dortmund days, but I think he's pure tracksuit now, isn't he? I don't know why he's gone for the pure tracksuit look because he's got the elegance of, you know, somebody who can carry off a decent suit. Yeah. Pep, I prefer him in a polo neck and jeans. Yeah. He's a lot calmer. That is his look. But and he looks a bit like a sort of early 1990s New York theatre director, like a frustrated does. one. Or you could say an early 90s Steve Jobs. You know, yeah, like, there is a well, No, no. That very works much. better, actually. And, the perfectionist. I remember Manchester City have got a tradition uh, that was started by Malcolm Allison, I do believe, back in the day, mm. of a sartorial elegance. Keep it up, Man City. Yeah, too mm. right. Um, last couple. Uh, Charlie Cameron Christie says, Yogi Lowe has never worn a tracksuit. That, that's, not, that's not a fact, but I cannot picture it. In but fact, he's he another says, polo neck guy, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. Uh, Cameron Christie says, no international manager should wear a tracksuit pitch side. I think he's bang on, Charlie. All international managers are, hey, are transcend tracksuitness. Hold on. The, let's just rule out or just uh, give leave a caveat for Sal Ramsey. 
Let me finish on this one, though. This is from Niall Worthington, who throws a spanner into the works. Opposite of someone you can't imagine in a tracksuit, for cup finals, Neil Lennon used to walk out in a suit and then change into a tracksuit once the match had started. <laughs> um, which, which, is a, which is a novel way of doing it, but Dotton, it reminds me, it makes me think instantly of the worst look in human civilization, which is the commuter in a full suit, but with running trainers on. It's there is no, there's no worse look. I, I will confess, I have done a variation of that, but not for <laughs> commuting purposes. It was to show the kids I was down with them, you know, and uh, to show their teachers, actually, I'm a very respectable guy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's hard to pull off, but if you it did was, it, fair It was a you. really nice pair of kicks, though. Good. I'll tell you that. Yeah, somebody said, nice kicks. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you you got it. And yeah, As uh, long as you don't go full marathon runner, it's okay. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not yeah. going to do it to work. No, That's no. fine. I, I once had to do that. I was in a suit and I'd injured my ankle. And so, and so and so I was told that you had, you know, wear comfortable shoes. So I was. <laughs> yeah. But I so I want to tell everyone on the train, oh, I'm no. not doing this out of choice. Yeah. I know, I know this is awful. Please don't judge me. Um, but you can't really do that. In fact, I think it's second only to wearing your work coat, like a big coat back from five side while you're still wearing <laughs> your kit, which is the opposite, <laughs> but also actually that worse is, now I yeah. think about it. Dawson Adebayo, thank you so much for doing this. This was um this was a this was a, a roller coaster of uh, intellect. We really did nail football philosophy, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, good old uh, Rene Descartes. Uh, je pense donc je suis. Quite a French footballer name, actually, René Descartes. I feel like he could have patrolled a sort of Marseille team in the early 90s quite comfortably. I was going to say, it's going back a bit. Yeah. Unlike Albert Camus. Cheers, Dotton. Anytime. Anytime, guys. Cheers. The Athletic.